nice to see you here tonight. Um, I was asked if I would give a couple of titles for the talks that I'm invited here to give for these couple of months. And so I decided that I would talk about Buddhist prayer, the power of Buddhist prayer. I think because it's a it's an important part of my own practice and I don't think it gets talked about very much. So I thought I might share a bit about that. There's actually one monk that I know who who ha- who does talk about prayer and Theravadan monk. Uh, he's uh, Ajahn Manindo. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an ab- he's the abbot at the um, monastery in Harnham in England, in the uh, Northumberland, and he has um, a little chapter in his book Unexpected Freedom. If you've ever seen that book on prayer and devotion. Theravadan Buddhism can often be rather dry, a bit devoid of devotional practices, or at least it can seem that way, especially sometimes the way we take it up in the West. But I, my sense is this group started because of wanting a bit more of the devotional side and chanting. And I find... Prayer, such an important part of, I think, aligning myself in a way that is supportive. So, in in um, Buddhist practice, it's an it's a non-theistic religion, so it prayer doesn't have quite the same orientation that it may in a theistic tradition. It's not about asking um, Supreme Creator for help. Although in my prayers I do ask for help. And uh, coming to any task with an attitude, a prayerful attitude, I find extremely helpful. Ajahn Manindo talks about it as you're really pouring out your heart's deepest wish. So something like, may I be free from suffering, or may all beings be free from suffering is a, is a prayer. It's a, a deep wish of the heart. So when we allow ourselves to give expression to what we really wish, that's prayer. So I find that regardless of what I'm about to do, 
whether it's um, talking about the Dhamma or meeting with someone or writing an email. When I remember to actually bring myself into a prayerful attitude, something is different. Profoundly different than when I don't. And I really think that it's the same, really, regardless of what religion we are practicing in. There's a power in tuning in and opening ourselves. to what might arrive as support for whatever it is that, that we're doing or, or wishing. So I think a prayerful attitude when we come to meditation is extremely valuable. For me, it feels like there's a a great dose of humility that comes with that. The ego just doesn't have as much of a space. Because I think there is a, an aspect of connection with what's larger in some sense through this prayer. Ajahnando tells this story of when he was talking with a Christian monk and he asked how do you teach people to pray? And this monk said it's not something that's taught it's something that's caught. You catch it from someone who, who knows how to do it, who does it. <laughs> and I think that's right. And Ajahn Manindu said that he felt like he caught it in Thailand, where the, the monks would come to the practice with a prayerful attitude. So I think that's, from my, from my personal experience, the way I would describe that feeling in myself is a kind of surrender, a kind of letting go and um, an attunement, a tuning in to the deepest wholesome desires of the heart. I find that really beautiful and inspiring. And I don't find Theravadan Buddhism dry at all. <laughs> um, the chanting we did earlier I find really inspiring. Even though it's talking about, you know, aging is dukkha and birth is dukkha and death is dukkha, we're all going to die and, you know. <laughs> I actually find that inspiring. <laughs> um, 
because that's the way it is. And I think the inspiring part is that there's nothing that we need to feel unhappy about, about any of that. It's uplifting to see things as they are and to be able to be present with that. So chanting, I think, is another form of prayer. I think mantra, is a, I see it as a form of prayer. And in terms of praying to something or um, someone, I think that it depends on how we look at things. Like sometimes people ask, I'm sure you've heard this question or maybe you've had this question, do Buddhists believe in God? And my favorite answer, one that a very experienced, wonderful monk in Thailand gave was it depends on what you, th- what you believe God is. It depends on your definition of God. In Buddhism, of course, it's not, it's not a, uh, the idea of a supreme being who's controlling things. I think it's much more a sense of, of holiness, at least. And, and this is probably quite personal, how we, how we see this, a sense of what's holy and wholesome and... Mm, Sort of this this seamless web of of energy and maybe love or joy and the the suttas are certainly full of references to the other world, the beings in the other world, and how they come to talk to the Buddha and to other monks and nuns and and my sense is that there's also a certain amount of help and support that comes from that other world. This, this same monk I just referred to is um, Ajahn Panyawado, and I would imagine you've probably got a DVD set of his if you're here in the library, I'm not sure, but they made a sort of memorial set of DVDs when after he passed away. He was um, amazing. He was English, and he spent, I think, 40 years living with Ajahn Mahabua um, near Udantani in Thailand. And I was very um, fortunate to be able to visit him and spend time there and just sit there on the ground and listen to him talk about Dhamma answer people's questions and he's, he talked about the questions he sometimes get you know when people say are the devas real and he would say they're as real as you or I 
And he also said that um, you can pray to the arahants. Now that's kind of mind-boggling because the concept of an arahant is that their work is finished and they go out like a flame, right? But there is this sense that some very developed meditation masters have one another one that I'm thinking of in particular who talks about the arahants being present at you know, like a katina ceremony or something and the way he makes sense of that is that their barami, their goodness, the goodness that they brought into the world still reverberating, still with us. I mean, I certainly can see that. I can see the goodness of the Buddha still with us, still having an effect on all of us. And what Ajahn Panyawada said about praying to the Arahants is that he said, if you ask for help, but you're not in trouble, nothing will probably happen. <laughs> but if you do need it, something probably will happen. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. And I think those kinds of things about what the um, other world has... I was looking today, actually, at the sutta and the Majjhima Nikaya and the middle-length discourses where the Buddha says that there is the other world. And when one says there is the other world and see, you know, knows there is the other world and they have right view and that encouraging other people to recognize that there is the other world does exist there there is such a place such a thing that's that's a positive thing but how that works exactly i think is something that we can discover internally and how that works with regard to the way we form our prayer, um, I think, is a matter of self-exploration, of exploration for oneself. So I think, basically, I would say that I find the practice of prayer extraordinarily uplifting and supportive. And I would encourage anyone who has that kind of leaning towards devotion to um, develop it. And I have to say that when I started in my Buddhist path, I was a bit confused about this I felt like I had to leave that behind and I think sometimes people have that feeling that idea and I mean I don't think I'm the only one <laughs> and then there's, it felt like there was something missing for me and I don't think that's just coming out of the conditioning of, of growing up in, in a 
sort of Protestant environment, I think that it's part of what's natural to the heart to give it that kind of sensitive, deep, meaningful expression and to recognize that there is not a definite boundary between me and everything else. So attuning to what's truly good helps us to incline more and more in that direction. And it helps us to purify our minds and our actions, which brings a lot of joy into one's life. Another thing Ajahn Manindo said is that even though he may not sit in meditation every day, he prays every day. And I think that that's lovely because it's a kind of practice that's so adaptable to whatever you're doing. (laughs) Driving is a great time to pray. When I was driving for the monastery in England because it was England, you're driving on the other side of the road, roundabouts, driving all different kinds of vehicles, big buses and everything. I I prayed every time before I got on the road. (laughs) I felt it was absolutely essential. (laughs) So... That's my reflection on Buddhist prayer. Thank you. Do you have any questions? Thank you. Uh, I recently uh, sat a retreat, and I found, I sort of discovered that when I was trying to meditate by following the instructions in my head, that it became very, very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And so I, I moved my awareness from kind of the head to the heart, and I think discovered some form of maybe more praying than meditating. Um, I think the thing I'm always curious about, that there's this Buddhist, uh, this Pali term, citta, which, as I understand, refers to the heart-mind. And sometimes that's described as one. But I think I experience it as as two. And I'm wondering if you could say something about that. Hmm. That there is, you know, that there's something like the head seems to do one thing and the heart seems to do something else. Yeah. So it's it's true that the chitta is that word is translated variously as heart or mind, but it is really chitta. 
I mean, it's not two things. And you can see all kinds of references in the suttas about the citta, and the, what the citta, you know, like let's just take as an example Anapanasati, and you look at the sutta, and it talks about the citta sankara and how you calm that, and then it talks about being present with the citta. And from what comes out of my own exploration of that is kind of leaving behind what I think of as heart or mind. So when, when in reality I do feel like my ideas of the heart are closer to what I experience of the citta because my ideas of the mind are very much about rational kind of analytical thinking which um, has its place. It's an excellent tool but it's not the function in meditation, I believe, that's most helpful. And the, so, so the citta, I think, is um, I guess the way I experience it is deeper than that in a way. And I mean, I know in, in, the, in the Thai culture, they locate the mind at the heart level. We say the mind is at the head, and they would, when they talk about the mind, it's here in the chest. But I'm not so sure it's locatable. I think it's more, you know, like, like when the masters talk about having our planting our awareness right at the citta, right at the place where thought and feeling arise. You know, I kind of ask myself, what does that mean? How do I do that? And then the answer doesn't come out of some logical thinking or some fantasy that I can create. It comes out of an intuitive sense. So I think in our culture, we think of that as what coming out of the heart. So my, my approach, at least, to this mystery is to just kind of drop in to the best of my ability to that stillness where that intuition can arise with a question. And if that question, like, you know, what is this? What is this chitta? And how do I come to know it and its formations? And I feel like throughout our practice, if we can identify a question like that, something we really don't understand fully, or um, something that we know about but we don't know, deep in ourselves, you know, then I think that's a beautiful way to motivate our practice. So taking, just taking that question of what is the citta? And it's not like my answer, if I could actually give one or anyone else's, is really going to do the job. 
But taking that in and really sitting with that question, for me, that's another kind of prayer. And um, like when Jesus said, ask and it'll be given to you, seek and you shall find, knock and it will be opened unto you. I have to say, that is my experience again and again. If I hold a question like that, some aspect of the Dhamma teaching that I don't understand, that I don't feel like I've got really at a deep level, and if I hold that question and I, and I let that sort of percolate in the background, and I do my best to find that point of stillness where, you know, the vastness of what can be truly known is available, then the answers come. I'd like to give you my idea of chitta and see what you think. Uh, I link it it to the uh, concept of dependent origination. Uh, So I I think I noticed that every time I have a thought, it uh, stimulates, however mildly, but sometimes quite strongly, uh, an emotional response in me. maybe just because of conditioning. Uh, uh, if I have a thought, then I'm prone to having a, an emotional response to that thought. Um, but uh, but, but I, my thoughts, whatever they are, I, I do have them, and, and emotional responses occur. So, uh, so I find it useful to check into my body and see where those emotional responses happen. And, uh, heart area or the throat or the stomach or clenching my jaw or, or just whatever it is. It might be many things. Um, so that that's how I think of the mind and the heart as being not the same thing but inextricably linked. Uh, whatever. And if you, have, if you have an emotion that tends to stimulate thoughts about those emotions too. So there's that Back and forth, which, um, um, and, and the entire field of thoughts and emotions is, I guess, what I think of as chitta. But if, but even as I speak, I'm starting to think it's it's more the, the body or the heart, than the mind. That's, I guess that's what I check in with. Well, I think that that. Hmm. Even starting out with I think doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> My experience also is that there's an attendant feeling coming with thoughts. And I've heard other people reflect on this as well. It, and there's some question about what comes first, but for me it seems like the thought comes and a feeling comes immediately with it. I resonate most with what you said about that whole field being the citta, or the citta itself being the ground for that and the 
thoughts and feelings being part of the formations that arise in the citta. All of that sounds pretty analytical, so I think that that's fine and that can help us go deeper, but the real knowing is something we probably can't even give language to. My guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't think of the citta as really that um, like more focused with the feelings arising. I think that that, that the, the citta is like the container where all of that happens. So it would be my, my way of experiencing it. And can our citta change over time? As we reflect upon our thoughts and our feelings and uh, we decide, we, we come to an understanding of what's, what's useful. Maybe, and so we modify how we respond okay, uh, to our thoughts or our feelings. Um, so that if we have, so we have a little bit more say in, in, in what happens next when a thought arises or a feeling arises. So does that lead to a, a change in our citta? Our citta is mutable according to our becoming more skillful? Well, based on what I've heard teachers say, I think it's not the citta that changes, it's the citta-sankara, the formations. So sankara, you can have, you know, sankara, or in Sanskrit it's samskara. These are the formations that get created or, you know, the mental formations. So all, all those khandas, the, the, the feeling, the mental formations, the perception, the sanya, vedana, sanya, sankara, they're all pretty closely related. You can't really tease them apart. And so it's, it's I think it's, it's that that changes. And I've heard master teachers talk about pure citta. It's like without defilement, um, you know, that I don't think that that's really part of what changes. Just my thought. So we have about five minutes left, and I think it might be good to chant uh, sharing the blessings and our closing homage. Page... 27. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue 
My mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Page 24, Closing Homage. Arahang Sama Sambuddho Bhagawa, the Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, Buddhang Bhagawan Tangabhiwademi, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. Suagato Bhagavata Dhammo, the teaching so completely explained by him. Dhammang Namasami, I bow to the Dhamma. Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango, the Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well. Sanghang Namami, I bow 
to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.